what Hollywood portrayed in the movie The Exorcist with levitations, vomiting, spitting at the priest with an uncanny marksmanship. All of that has not been a movie for me. I have seen that firsthand. My name is Father Carlos Martins. I'm a priest of the Catholic Church. People ask exorcists all the time, is that movie accurate and did it depict what happens during possession and during liberation accurately? And, and the answer is, the short answer is yes. The only thing that I see in that movie that doesn't happen in an exorcism was the, the 360 degree head spin. Exorcism is actually in the news right now. In an interview with the New York Times, Nancy Pelosi and her daughter Alexandra spoke of the hammer attack incident with Nancy's husband Paul and claimed that over Thanksgiving she had priests coming trying to have an exorcism of the house and having prayer services, end quote. Well, the New York Post, however, seemed to cast doubt on the story since Nancy's pastor told the newspaper, as far as I know, no exorcisms or priest services were performed in her home. But exorcism is no joking matter. In fact, demonic activity underlies all the problems we are facing in the world today. It's tied to abortion, to the LGBT agenda, to sexual abuse, drug abuse, and so much more. A couple of months ago, I had a fascinating guest on this show by the name of Patricia Sandoval, who spoke about dealing with her three abortions, the aftermath of the abortions, but she also told the story of a man in Mexico who is possessed after the legalization of abortion in the country. The man is possessed by the very same demons that ruled Mexico before Our Lady of Guadalupe converted the nation and brought an end to the brutal child sacrifice going on there. Have a listen. Pope Francis tells Father Juan Rivas, take him to Father Amoreth for an exorcism. He, is, he has legions, he's possessed. These demons revealed, we are the four demons that governed and controlled Mexico before the apparition in 1531. We are the demons of bloodshed and human sacrifice. Now that the Mexican people have betrayed the woman up above, we are now on the throne again. Hello, LifeSite friends. To celebrate the momentous overturning of Roe v. Wade, we at LifeSite have minted just under 10,000 brand new limited edition pro-life silver rounds. Each round is stamped on the back with an image of the Supreme Court of the United States featuring the date that the High Court delivered this historic victory. And on the front of our pure silver rounds, we feature LifeSite's logo, surrounded by brilliant sunbursts and draped with olive branches, and each round commemorates LifeSite's 25 years of pro-life, pro-family reporting in America, Canada, and beyond. These one troy ounce rounds are 0.999 pure silver, and LifeSite has just under 10,000 in stock. They're beautiful, historic, and forever enshrining the most important American pro-life victory of a generation. This first edition LifeSite Silver Round is the perfect gift for yourself or anyone you love that collects precious metals and is passionately pro-life. And each purchase helps directly fund LifeSite's pro-life and pro-family mission. This is the first precious metals collectible of its kind that is directly supporting LifeSite's worldwide mission that you know, love, and trust. And now it can be yours while limited supplies last. Get your one troy ounce rounds of 99% pure silver today by clicking the first link below and celebrate life with all of us at LifeSite News. Please go to the John Henry Weston Show video page and look up the show with Patricia Sandoval to watch the full video.
But demonic activity is also tied to the other battles in the culture war as well. I remember a LifeSite article 15 years ago. It went viral because it was called Promiscuity Can Lead to Demonic Possession. The story was based on a book by an exorcist in England, a priest of Westminster, the leading diocese in the Catholic Church of England and Wales. And he wrote that promiscuity, as well as homosexuality and pornography, is a form of sexual perversion and can lead to demonic possession. And, you know, he offered what may be an explanation for the explosion of homosexuality in recent years. His name was Father Jeremy Davies, and he said, and I quote, Among the causes of homosexuality is a contagious demonic factor, end quote. In his book called Exorcism, Understanding Exorcism in Scripture and Practice, Father Davies also wrote, and I quote, Even heterosexual promiscuity is perversion. And intercourse, which belongs in the sanctuary of married love, can become a pathway not only for disease, but also for evil spirits. End quote. Even the transgender craze can be linked back to the action of the evil one. One of the best-known modern-day exorcists, the late Father Gabriel Amorth, who died in 2016, he wrote that disordered ideas about gender, especially in children, can be a sign of torment from the devil. Demonic disturbances that torment individuals, called a diabolic obsession, he said, and I quote, can lead to confusion about one's gender, particularly in the young, he wrote. And his book was called An Exorcist Explains the Demonic, The Antics of Satan and His Army of Fallen Angels. But the church is so divided on this question, it seems like it's suffering from multiple personality syndrome. Back in December, a priest in Germany actually praised the benefits of pornography. So in response, an American priest and exorcist, who's been an exorcist, I think, for about 15 years, responded, warning that pornography can open souls to demonic activity. That was Monsignor Stephen Rossetti, an exorcist for the Archdiocese of Washington and a licensed psychologist. He said, and I quote, a pornography addiction, like any serious sin, is an opening to the demonic, end quote. But the schizophrenia in the church gets even worse. Last November, Swiss Bishop Joseph Maria Bonamain of the Diocese of Chur abolished the office of exorcist in his diocese. Bonamain said that, he said actually in an interview, that there would be normal solutions for most problems and that people have, and that he's never been confronted with a person that needed a major exorcism. According to the report that came from Swiss radio and television called SRF, the bishop claims to have received the task from Pope Francis to solve the dispute between arch-conservative and moderate Catholics in his diocese, and he said that ha not having an exorcist was a step toward what he called normalization. Well, on the opposite side of the spectrum, and in line with traditional Catholic thought, in July of last year, the Archdiocese of Manila in the Philippines began construction on a large exorcism center, as exorcists have revealed that they now face 10 cases needing exorcism every day. In May, Cardinal Jose Advincula and Father Francisco Sequia, director of the Archdiocese of Manila's Office of Exorcism, led the groundbreaking ceremony to begin construction of the St. Michael Center for Spiritual Liberation and Exorcism in Makati City. Now, Father Sequia said that the center would be uh, 
would exactly minister to those in bondage to the devil who are therefore the poorest of the poor and are usually overlooked, end quote. He added that they in the diocese are now looking to increase the number of exorcists in the country, even though there has already been a dramatic growth in exorcists. At that time, there were already 171 exorcists in various dioceses in the Philippines. So, as I said, exorcism and the demonic is no joke, and Father Carlos Martins is about to reveal that in his new podcast. Have a listen. What Hollywood portrayed in the movie The Exorcist with levitations, vomiting, spitting at the priest with an uncanny marksmanship, all of that has not been a movie for me. I have seen that firsthand. My name is Father Carlos Martins. I am a priest of the Catholic Church. I was an atheist until as a young adult, the Lord brought me out of darkness. And since then, I've been living in his love. But I've also seen things, very evil things, things that I wish weren't true. The job of the exorcist, properly speaking, is not to cast out the devil. The job of the exorcist is to find out why is the devil there? What rights has the demon gained? What doorway has he entered through? This is the first time I've opened my files about these battles to the public. Up next, Father Carlos Martins himself. This is the John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. Father Carlos Martins, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Father, we always start our program at the side of the cross. If you could lead us, please. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Almighty God, we give you this time. We ask you to bless it in Jesus' most holy name. For this we pray. Amen. Amen. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Very controversially, I guess, in, in, in some circles anyway, you are an exorcist. Maybe you can start very basic. What is an exorcist? What does that even mean? I'm going to start out by stating what it doesn't mean. So most people, and, and this, is, this, is, this is a part of a teaching I've, I've, I've trained exorcists. Uh, I, I give seminars to clergy on exorcism. Uh, and so this is, this is a, a series of, of uh, this is a line uh, for which I'm known all over. The job of the exorcist is not to cast out the devil. The job of the exorcist is to find out why is the devil there? What rights has he gained? And then it's the exorcist's job to work with the victim to rescind those rights. So it's a pastoral activity. It's so most people think that you know an exorcist comes in, he faces the devil, and they go pitting against one against the other, and you know the most powerful one wins. So so uh, and and the weapons that the exorcist has is the church equips him with a rite, equips him with a trusty crucifix equips him with holy water and and basically he he goes in and clobbers the devil over the head and that is that is that is not what happens at all if the devil is in somebody or in a place he is there because he has gained the right to be there and just like i can't go into your home and kick you out of it because you have a right to be there you have a deed uh, i can't go into somebody and kick out the devil as long as he has the right to be there so I've got to I've got to work on those rights first of all with the victim. I want to back up a little bit to your own journey 
I know that you were an atheist in your youth. Um, how in the world did you end up becoming a priest, let alone becoming an exorcist? Well, I had to have a conversion. I was baptized as an infant, but I was not raised with religion. And when I was in university, I encountered a small group of students, um, just a handful, uh, maybe, maybe it was about six perhaps, um, and a small number of professors who were committed Catholics. And their Catholicism, their Christianity was so authentic that they emanated this profound peace. And, and, and the story that I like to tell that exhibits this piece, the anecdote is I was with one of these students one day in, the, in, in one of the coffee shops on campus. And somebody came in, we're sitting at a little round table, having, each having a cup of coffee. Somebody came in and informed him that his car had been stolen from the parking lot that morning. It was driven around campus in the back streets and it was slammed into a great big oak tree. The car was now hugging that tree. In other words, the car is garbage. And I remember him receiving that news, and then he turns and he faces me again, and this is what he said. Well, I guess it just wasn't God's will for me to have a car right now. He could still enjoy the cup of coffee in front of him. <laughs> and that you know, our conversation went on at least for half an hour after that. And I can't tell you a single thing about what we talked about. I was mesmerized by the fact that this, he didn't give a rat's rump about his car, which at the time would have destroyed me. So the, these people were different. And when one of them organized a retreat at the end of the semester, so I was in my in between my second and third year of university at that point. Um, I just finished the second. Uh, he organized a Eucharistic adoration retreat, and I had no idea what that was. So he said the word retreat, and I understood vacation. So, I, hey, sure, I'll, I'll bring the beer. And so I, I went to this retreat, and then once I saw what it consisted of, uh, so, I mean, we had adoration. Each man would have four hours a day. Uh, at, at every six hours, you had an hour that would begin. I mean, even the Carthusians don't do something that, uh, that kind of hardcore. Anyway, that's what was organized. And, you know, who do you think, as luck would have it, as grace would have it, who do you think had the first shift? So there I am in front of what looked to me like a cracker. Mm -hmm. Right. So there, there, there is, I'm in front of what looks to me like a cracker and, and I'm supposed to adore this and, and, and worship what looks to me in that manner as God. I didn't have the faith in that moment. I just felt shame and I plotted my escape and, and uh, I, I, you know, I, this was before cell phones. So I couldn't, this was in 1996. I, I couldn't fake uh, an emergency. Hey, I just got a call. My mom is sick. I got to go. So in order to get out, I, I, I had one of two things that I could say. I could say I forgot something at home and then I had to leave to go get it and then just not come back. But I mean, there were stores all around. So that one was no good. The other one was uh, I just I feel ill. But, you know, I had so much respect for the integrity of this group. I could not bring myself to lie to them. 
So their, their witness had such a purity about it that I just, I couldn't bring myself to tell them a lie. And so I did what the, the most honest act I'd ever did in my life. I got on my knees and, and I said, God, I don't know if you're here or not. And I felt just completely foolish in doing this. Um, I, I mean, I fe it felt like to me the equivalent of kneeling in front of a tree and talking to a tree. I mean, it, 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 that's what the experience felt like to me. I said, Lord, uh, God, I don't know if you exist or not. I don't believe you do. But if you do, please reveal yourself to me. And I will give you my life if you do so. If you can give me the faith that I see in them, the joy I see in them, I'll give you my life. And so what happened then for the, nothing happened. I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. But I was surprised how easy it was for the rest of that hour to just sit there in silence. It wasn't overwhelming, but the anxiety of sitting there for an hour and doing nothing it, it went by relatively quickly. The second shift I had was even more easy. And then the third shift, which happened at 3 a.m., that's when the, the wheels of kind of the atheist truck, if you will, fell off. And, and in, that, in that sometime during that adoration time, I had an experience of God where I knew that I was in front of Almighty God. I knew that he had created me. I knew that I was created in love. And that experience was so powerful, so real, so striking that it, it's as real for me today. It's as shocking, it's as surprising in this moment. And I've never doubted the faith since. So I, I went to that retreat as an atheist and I came out a believer. It was about seven years after that, that I got a call to the priesthood. Again, ironically, I was at a retreat. You know, God... God speaks to people on retreats. So pe people should be taking retreats. You know, retreats are a good thing. Uh, make time in your life to go on a retreat. You know, God God will come to you. And so I got the call there. And, it, you know, that one was, in a sense, much less dramatic. Or, or at least it didn't take as long for that experience to happen. Um, on one of the days, the Lord just said, Car Carlos, I want you to be a priest. I promise to make you very happy uh, if you choose that. And in that moment, uh, the experience was as strong uh, as my conversion experience was. And again, to this day, I've, I've never doubted it. it, would, it it's an experience that it feels just impossible to doubt. As a seminarian, I was involved in some deliverance cases, some spiritual warfare kind of case, but very simple, minor stuff. As a deacon, that's when I was kind of thrown into things. Uh, I was stationed in Houston, Texas, and the companions, we compromised at the time the, the exorcism ministry uh, for Cardinal Daniel DiNardo, the archbishop, and there were, there were three priests involved in that ministry, all, all of them uh, being part of my religious community, and they, they were really busy. Uh, I went on to replace one of them. Uh, when I became ordained as a priest, and and so I saw I I saw that firsthand. They were so busy dealing with people and possession cases, uh, and severe oppression cases, that when something relatively minor would come in, like a house haunting, where where a, a house is uh, infested, the people are not, but the place is, they just turned to me and said, "Okay, deacon, batter up, go get rid of the devil." And and at the time, I didn't have any training.
Um, but I knew, I just knew, I just had a kind of instinct. If the devil's there, he's going to be there for a reason. And I need to uncover that reason. Like I, I was kind of, I guess, had enough wits about me to know that you don't get the devil in a place, in a person, by making peanut butter sandwiches uh, or by chewing the wrong flavor of gum. That, that there's something that has to happen that brings him into that situation. And so I went into those house uh, exorcisms with the knowledge that something has to be undone that was done in order for the devil uh, to depart. And so upon ordination as a priest, I was thrown right into the ministry and, and I've worked in, within it ever since. Uh, in two days, I fly out of state and help uh, a local uh, diocesan exorcist with his cases. Father, if you could finish that story for us about the house, that was fascinating. If you can give us one example or, or an approximation of one um, of what can go into a house to haunt it and how to stop that from happening, how to kick the devil out. So one of the very first cases I had, so a woman came to the parish and she requested her house to be blessed. And what I started to do was ask people, why do you want it blessed? I mean, you know, Catholics, we, we don't need a reason to have a house blessed. We just bless it because it's a good thing to do. Uh, we, we always do that. But I started asking that because sometimes people say, hey, I want my house blessed. What they really mean is, uh, you know, there's something bad going on in my house and I, I want it addressed. I want to get rid of it. So, uh, so I asked her that, and she said, things are happening in it. What kinds of things? Uh, well, she would have an object sitting um, on a table, uh, safely on a table, safely on a countertop. The object would just suddenly, unexpectedly fall to the floor. It was nowhere near the edge. It would fall and break. Appliances would turn on by themselves, would turn off by themselves, uh, but kind of the, the creepiest thing was there was a music box in one of the bedrooms that would start chiming randomly day and night. Uh, so this house was a house that belonged to her uncle. Uh, her house had been destroyed in a fire. And so he had lent the use of his house to his niece. He was deployed in Afghanistan at the time. So he was going to be away at least another three years. Um, and so his house was empty, let her use it and so, and so forth. So she entered into the house and uh, all of this stuff started to happen. The music box was one that, it was the one that was the creepiest. And she described uh, sitting on the couch and, and at times thinking, gosh, you know, it's been hours since I've heard the music box, maybe it stopped. And at that moment, it would start chiming, almost as if, it could read her thoughts. The devil cannot read our thoughts. He can anticipate uh, what we're thinking by our body language, uh, by the patterns that he's observed, by which he can deduce what we're thinking based on what we're doing. He can do that. He's very good at that. But he, he does not have access to our thoughts. Regardless, so I, I agree to go over and I I bring my bag, everything I need to, to bless and exercise this house. And as soon as I arrive at the place, she, she, uh, I stepped in and I saw the ceiling fan start spinning. And it would spin really slowly. And then all of a sudden, 
start spinning so fast. I mean, spinning as fast as the propeller of a plane. I, spinning so fast that the the fins on this fan were invisible. The, the the thing was just a blur. It would create so much wind that papers and small objects in the in the room were were, were blowing around, bouncing around. So I go over to the counter, to the kind of the island counter in the kitchen. I put down my bag and I st start taking out my things. And I ask her to go to the sink and, and bring me back a bowl with water. So I first thing I'm doing is blessing the holy water, making holy water. When I'm done that, I move right into the prayers of exorcism for a place out of the ritual that the church has. And as I'm saying those prayers, boom. I hear the music box going. Now, to give another dimension about that music box, it was sitting on a dresser. And what, what creeped her out is the fact that there was nobody present in the house other than her. And so no one is winding this music box. And at times it would go off for hours without stop. It would stop randomly, pick up, sometimes after a great length of time, sometimes after a short. But it wasn't being wound. And so she, she went to investigate it and she could see the key inside uh, on the side and she removed the key, but that had absolutely no effect on it. She tried to pick up the music box to remove it out of the house and it wouldn't budge. It was as if it was, it had four legs, but it was as if it was fused to the top of the dresser. So after making the holy water and after saying the exorcism prayers for the house, I go around blessing each room, sprinkling holy water everywhere. When I'm done the first floor, I move on to the second. Meanwhile, the fan, it's doing its own thing. It stops spinning in one direction instantly and starts spinning just as fast in the other direction with no slowdown and no buildup of momentum. I mean, something that would just be physically impossible in, in terms of, of uh, the, the laws of nature. So I bless all of the rooms on the second floor and the last one I leave is the bedroom with the music box. And so I entered into that room and there is the music box sitting on the counter and it's chiming away, uh, sitting on the dresser, pardon me. So what I do is I put down the bowl with holy water and I reach down to pick up this music box and I pick it up without issue. I mean, it just picked up, it weighed maybe a couple of pounds, like what you would expect a typical music box to weigh. But as soon as I touched it, it stopped chiming. So the chime stopped. I open up the music box. So that's another thing. Typically, a music box starts chiming when you open the lid. Uh, the lid was closed the entire time for this. So when I opened the lid, I found that there was absolutely nothing but empty space inside this box. There were no mechanical parts. There was nothing, and there was no evidence that there ever were any. Uh, so there was no glue residue, no screw marks from anything having been in there. There was empty space. I could see the 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 hole, the keyhole where the the wind up key would go, but it itself was connected to nothing. So I put down the music box. I blessed that room. Uh, she never had another phenomena again. So why was the enemy present in that house? Uh, the short answer is, I don't know. But obviously, her uncle was into something that he shouldn't be into. 
and this presence is in his house. When he gave her permission to stay there as his guest, then she, in the legal realm, demons are legalistic entities. In the legal realm, she was equivalent as to, to being the owner. And so her having given me permission to bless the house and get rid of this phenomena was sufficient to stop it. Did that? Did the demons permanently leave? I don't know. I, part, I highly doubt it, but they were quiet. They didn't have permission to act because the guest, who is now the de facto owner, had taken that right away from them. And I had ratified that right through the power of the church. So that, that was one of the first situations I had ever had. These exorcisms, how, how long does this take to do? The ritual of exorcism of a place might take you four minutes, maybe five, if, uh, if you're praying the prayers, praying them deliberately, uh, which you ought to. The sprinkling of the holy water, which is, which is included in the rite, which is, which is prescribed by the rite as the last step, that really depends on how big the house is. When I bless a home, I bless every single room. I bless all four corners of the room. And uh, I make a pass through the center of the room. I bless every window and every door, every access point, so to speak, uh, to every room, to every home. I bless the backyard. I bless the garage, the basement, the front door, the front stoop, the driveway, and so forth. So that I'm, I'm kind of hitting, um, I'm, I'm making a, a declaration. Uh, I'm staking a claim by the Lord for this property, for everything in it and everyone in it, for the entire property. Do I need to do that necessarily? Maybe not necessarily, but staking the claim is itself a prayer and is it is itself an act of authority. I want everybody to know uh, also who you are in the sense of the world because there is a website associated with you. Um, love to tell that story. It's exorcistfiles.tv. So what's happening is next week on Wednesday, there is a podcast that is launching worldwide. Uh, that podcast was a collaborative effort between two Hollywood producers, iHeartMedia, the Vatican, and myself. And so that was um, an attempt to bring about a knowledge and an awareness of demonic activity in the world that is present today and to have the Vatican wanted an exorcist, a seasoned exorcist, to give a catechesis um, as to the devil, demonology, and possession. Go check them out, exorcistfiles.tv. This subject, I think, is so fascinating because people watch it on movies. Um, but there's a lot of stuff on movies that isn't true, and, and you see all sorts of weird stuff. What's it like in real life? I mean from what you've seen? That's a question everybody wants to know, right? Most of us of a, of a certain generation, and certainly you and I fall into that, uh, John Henry, uh, we've seen the movie The Exorcist. And, and that's kind of the, the benchmark movie worldwide about the devil and about possession. Um, so people ask exorcists all the time, uh, did that, is that movie accurate? And did it depict what happens during possession and during liberation accurately? And the, and the answer is, the short answer is yes. Uh, the only thing that I see in that movie that, that doesn't happen in an exorcism uh, 
uh, is what was was the the 360 degree head spin that would break a human being's neck uh, and so the the body remains the body during possession and the body's limitations its its innate limitations are there now there are certain limitations that are surpassed so so uh superhuman strength is possible that's provided by the demon though it's not provided by the human body but he cannot make the human body do something that is against its innate nature uh so for example spinning ahead 360 degrees but the vomiting the levitation the room suddenly and without warning dropping 35 degrees and so a room becomes frigid cold uh, and in fact, the windows and the doors can be open, and the cold is contained only within the room. Step six inches outside the room, and you feel normal room temperature. And yet, six inches in to this open doorway, in fact, there doesn't even need to be a doorway. He, the, the coldness can be contained in a, in, w- within a 12-foot a radius. Just a quick note before we return. If you would like to stay up to date on LifeSite's coverage of the latest life, family, and culture news, subscribe to one of our many newsletters by going to lifesitenews.com slash subscribe. And if you'd like to help us bring our truth-telling coverage to millions around the world, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation at give.lifesitenews.com. And now, back to the video. Just for clarity, Father, is this stuff that you yourself have experienced? Yes, absolutely. The sensationalistic parlor tricks that the devil does are just that. They are parlor tricks. They are an attempt by the demon to scare the exorcist, uh, to scare his assistants that would be there, the intercessors he'll have in the room, um, the the other people that are present. And so let, let me ask you a question. If you went into a room, if you're invited to be an intercessor at an exorcism, uh, and, and notice I'm asking that, I didn't say spectator, you would never bring somebody in to be just a spectator. Why? It wouldn't be safe for you to do that. If you're coming in as a spectator, you are already coming in, you're giving the devil the right to a relationship. You're coming to observe him. That is relationship forming. It wouldn't be safe for you for that to happen. But if you're coming as an intercessor, you have a role and you're going to fulfill that role. And that role is against him. So that prevents any kind of relationship forming. But if you came into a room and you saw something levitate, you, you saw the, the crucifix I had, I put it down on the table and it begins levitating into the air. So it's three feet up off the table. That might get you a little bit tense when you see that, right? So let's say you're in your 17th exorcism and you've seen that every single time. Are you going to be as tense about it the 17th time as you were the first? Probably not, right? After 200 times, you're not even going to put down your cup of coffee, right? You're, you're going to keep drinking. It becomes a parlor trick. Oh, the, the levitating crucifix again. Right? So what happens after time is the devil stops doing the parlor tricks because they're just not effective. They they don't, their intended purpose isn't being met. And so he doesn't waste his energy doing that. What, What he employs his energy in doing is resisting 
the prayers and the attack of the priest. The, he, he resists the prayers of the church. Uh, and so he, he puts his energy in that, in trying to, to protect the real estate that he's claimed and prevent that from being lost. So one of the things we learn or hear about with exorcisms is sometimes they can actually go on for a long, long time, sometimes even more than a year. How does that look like? What does that mean? What does it mean when you said you have to unpack or find out what the root is and then undo the rites? The most difficult part of exorcism is the diagnostic, is, to fi is the figuring out why the devil is there. Uh, and that can, he can be there for a number of reasons. The most common is personal mortal sin. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that. Uh, it can be a curse that was placed on a person. Uh, it can be what we call a generational sin, that there was a covenant made in the family line that is present there. And that covenant is was brought in by a sin, by a mortal sin. Uh, and it, it, it subjects everybody in that bloodline to a particular demon or demons. Um, but, but generally speaking, an exorcism session might last anywhere between an hour and a half to four hours. And after that, you're, you're, you're generally pretty exhausted. Um, but you would require about a year and a half of time on average to complete a possession case and exercise the devil. And so that's with an exorcism happening at least once a week. So to state it differently, the average possession case lasts 75 sessions. Whoa. I have some that I am helping an exorcist with. Um, they've been, uh, well, there's two cases he has. These are the most visceral cases that I've ever had, that I've ever seen. I've never even read about cases this visceral. Uh, they've been in play for over 12 years. So each one has a unique character. I really can't talk about those cases because they're active, but there's kind of everything in between. There, there's some possession cases, they're over in, in one shot, one session. Uh, why would some be as quick as that and others be so long? Uh, well, it comes down to two things. One is what doors were opened and why, that's one. Secondly, the nature of the demons that are involved themselves. If you have bigger demons, you have bigger cases. The more powerful the demon, the more powerful the hold. And, and, and demons have entourages. Uh, the, the, the demonic world is a very legalistic world, but it's also a militaristic world. So you have legions, you have captains, you have generals. Uh, and so what they'll do, as, as you have a higher ranking demon present within a person, he's putting his foot soldiers in front of you. And uh, behind them are other stronger legionnaires, so to speak. And so to get to him, you sometimes have to go through a plethora of other ones. What's the greatest number of demons you've ever seen in a person? There was one person who was born into a satanic cult. So, so this person uh, was born into a cult that worshiped Satan. And this person was born to a breeder. So satanic cults will have women that serve as breeders. Uh, satanic cults are very much a patriarchal society. And that's what makes them incompatible 
with witchcraft or, or Wiccan cults. Uh, so one is a patriarchal society, one is a matriarchal society. They are natural enemies. Right? So they, they don't typically work together. It's not to say that they never have, but they loathe one another. A satanic cult will have breeders and the, the priests, the satanic priests, uh, they will impregnate the breeders, and that's what ensures the longevity of the cult. Satanic cults are not interested in recruiting new members. They raise their own members. And when they birth children, uh, they birth them off the record. So there's no registration of the births. Uh, this is why, for example, I mean, well, pe people don't typically know this, but the vast majority of the child pornography that is produced is produced within the context of satanic cults. So the children are off the grid. The births are not registered. No one recognizes them. And, 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 and the proof of this, among other things, is in the fact that, yeah, once in a while we hear about rings of child pornography being discovered by the police and there being stings and so forth. And, and groups of people are netted within this. You know, we hear about 89 people were arrested in this ring, uh, consumers of pornography, three of them were judges, 18 of them were teachers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what we never hear about and you've never heard about is the child actors being discovered. And the reason why is by the time that that pornography is released, those kids are no more. They have been sacrificed in a satanic ritual. And so that's that world. That world is a cruel world. Uh, and this is how the, the cults, first of all, they make money. They make tremendous amounts of money selling this. But they protect themselves because uh, if, if uh, to, to prove the pornography was produced here, where is the child that's in the video? Right? That, that child is, has been slaughtered uh, long before that moment. Uh, so this person was born to a satanic cult, was consecrated to Satan at various times in her life, from the time she was in the womb uh, to the time, um, I mean, to, to birth, and uh, with, through different discrete ceremonies. So when she escaped the cult, she was already a young adult. Uh, when I started the sessions with this individual, uh, they were easily the most violent that I had ever been part of, uh, immensely violent. Uh, she picked up uh, one of the holders that was there, a big, an enormous six foot five, 300 pound man and just tossed him with one arm across the room. Uh, she then pointed to a light switch on the wall. And, you know, your, your light switches, they have a cover plate. There's a screw on top of the switch, a screw below that kind of keeps the plate in the wall. She pointed at the light switch. One of the screws unscrewed itself, came flying through the air into her hand, and she drove it into her left arm. We never saw the screw again. In her, the amount of demons are immense in, in the you know her her exorcism took years in the early years we we would work for hours and we, we might get one or two demons out by five six years into it there were in one session maybe a one four hour session there might be 2500 that are cast out oh my god uh, and 
And, and how we would know the number is we're not meeting them one by one. But by that point, we were already able to cast out legionnaires and captains. So you cast him out and you cast all the demons that are in his entourage out. And so at that point, we were covering a lot of ground. Uh, and she had experienced a tremendous amount of freedom by that point. Um, but and, and how we knew how many were gone is we would compel a demon to tell us how many were just cast out. And that would give us a map. And in the end, can you trust what a demon says to you 100%? No. But by that point, these demons are up against a rope. There's been years of battling. They're weakened. Uh, the Holy Spirit is present within her because by that time we had baptized her, we had confirmed her, none of these things had ever been done. So there was a tremendous amount of grace operative within her. Uh, and so at that point, we were removing large amounts of demons from her. One of the other things you do, Father, is, is related, of course, but you go around and uh, show relics um, of, of the saints at churches do relics assist you when you when you do exorcisms? Yeah, absolutely. So I run Treasures of the Church, which is a Vatican ministry of relics of the saints. So I conduct expositions worldwide within churches, schools, and prisons, bringing a large Vatican exhibit of relics. Uh, I give a catechesis on the saints, teaching on the saints and their relics. And then I allow people to go venerate them, to touch them, to bless themselves with them, and so forth. Um, so that's very much a ministry of, of evangelization, uh, but it's also very much a healing ministry. Relics heal, and we hear about in scripture uh, in various places where that occurs. But relics are also exorcistic. So where relics are, the, the demons are being fought. Uh, there's an invisible war happening. And, and St. Jerome says famously in one of his letters, uh, in his letter to Vigilantius, uh, that, that even the dust of the saints causes the demons to howl. Uh, and so very, there, there are deliverances that occur within exorcisms. You, you see that happening regularly where, uh, for example, uh, one of the things I do, the, the relics are all laid out on blue tablecloths. The reliquaries are gold. The tablecloths I have are royal blue. Royal blue shows off gold marvelously well. I bring extra cloths because what happens, and I noticed this years ago, and I, I had no explanation for this until the exorcistic dimension of relics became much more evident uh, through the exorcisms I was conducting and so forth, but simply the regularity of this phenomena occurring. And that is parents would come, they would bring a little kid, five, six years old. They would bring him for the to the first table with the relics and he'd promptly vomit all over it. And so, you know, the parents would be met with, with embarrassment and shame. Um, and I started bringing extra tablecloths because this happened with such regularity. And so what, uh, what I discovered is that there's typically something happening in the lives of the parents that puts them at enmity with God. There's some moral transgression in one or both that is there and that is present. And the children are suffering because of it. So what happened to the kid, what's happening is the kid is being delivered. 
And that, that vomiting is a manifestation of the cleansing that's going on within him. And so what I've learned to do is just turn to the parents, put them aside and said, look, I have no idea what's happening in your lives, but there's something that is not good. And you probably know exactly what that is. Get rid of it. I'll give them a card if they want to talk more. Uh, but, but that's what's going on in, the, in, in terms of the kids. Um, there, uh, there have been schools that I've set up at or parish halls where there, there have been poltergeist phenomena that happen in there. People hear footsteps, disembodied footsteps, moans, rattles. Um, after the event with the relics are there, nothing. Just a dead silent, a piece. Uh, so there's an invisible battle happening with relics. So that, that ministry, if, if any of your viewers are interested in it, it's described at treasuresofthechurch.com, uh, which is uh, the ministry's website. A couple things you said that are very interesting. One, you said that it's most often due to mortal sin. Now, in our day and age, that's not a very foreign thing. We have, uh, you know, pornography is ubiquitous and, and self-abuse, as it used to be called properly, uh, is, is normalized for everybody. It's recommended. And so that's rife. It, are we dealing with an infestation of demons like never before in history or what's going on? There have been in the last 10 years a record number of possessions reported. Uh, and that is, uh, th that is not only why the Vatican opened a school for exorcism, uh, but why the Vatican wanted the production of the podcast series that is being released this coming Wednesday is to give people the information that there are implications when one lives a sinful lifestyle. And, and sin is being normalized within Western society. Um, you know, the, the homosexuality, uh, masturbation, as you mentioned, pornography, like none of that is, is uh, you know, when it, 20 years ago, people never, if, if, if the mention of pornography or masturbation came up, people were embarrassed by that. Nobody's embarrassed about it anymore. And, and, and among the young, it's, it's, it's talked about as, as, as a matter of fact. But you have also other things that are affecting, not just say kids, teens, um, you have adults picking up demons in, through, through ways that they never expected, right? So one of the things you see popping up everywhere is spas offering Reiki treatments. Spas offering treatments whereby a practitioner will come lay her hands on you and raise your energy level, right? So this is not massage. This is not physical therapy. This is a spiritual action being done on you to raise your energy. Well, by definition, this is, this is an act of the occult. This is invoking a, a power, an energy, a spirit that is not of God. And so this is the equivalent, if you will, of using the Ouija board, where, where you're opening a portal, you're allowing yourself to be used as a portal and a spirit to enter into you. Uh, so this is entirely incompatible with Christianity. Uh, you have businessmen, uh, for the sake of business contact, it's become fashionable again. Uh, and I, I say again, I mean, it always was fashionable, but now even within Catholic circles, right, even within evangelical Christian circles, it's, it's fashionable to become a Freemason. Uh, 
people get in in order to develop business contacts. But you know what? Uh, this is uh, a society rooted in the occult. The oaths one takes as a Mason are occult oaths. And as I mentioned earlier, I think I mentioned it in the program here, that the most frequent way, uh, you know, if I didn't, I'm mentioning it now, the, the most frequent way that people get demons is through dabbling in the occult. The second most common is through sexual sin. Uh, but why the occult? Well, because to dabble in the occult, to transgress in the occult, one is taking the place of God. One is usurping the divine cosmology and the divine authority of reality and taking control over realms or attempting to take control over realms and dimensions that belong to sovereign God. You're pushing God out of the way. By definition, that is the demonic rebellion. That's exactly what the demons did. And so you are imitating them 100%. And in the sexual dimension, well, our sexuality is the way by which, and the, the proper use of our sexuality is the way by which we most resemble God in our dignity. Human sexuality used in, in its intended purpose brings about new life, new creation. It brings about a unity in the spouses, uh, a deeper and profound love for them, for one another. And to misuse it is to, again, appropriate the rebellion of the demonic. It's a crying out of, no, I will not serve God in the manner that he's chosen. I'm going to do what I want. And so these two areas are easily the two areas where people pick up the most demons. Wow. With all of this sort of supernatural stuff going on, levitation and, and things like this, doesn't that – anybody who has doubts as to, you know, the spirit world, the, wouldn't that be cured? <laughs> has, have you ever seen like an exorcism and what goes on in there lead to someone having a deeper faith because they're like, wow, it's really real? Obviously, I mean, it would cause their categories to be shifted. However, um, somebody who doesn't have faith already, you would never bring them into an exorcism. Uh, because at that point, you know, the devil is under incredible duress and he's going to look for any mouse hole in which to crawl. And if that person who lacks no faith, if that home is even more inviting than the home he currently occupies, and to state it differently, if that host offers him better and perhaps even more secure real estate than what he's got in victim A, then he will jump, and now this person has become victim B. And now you have a situation where it's much, much more difficult now to get rid of the devil. So, Father, I guess the, the ultimate question for us is, what can we best do to guard ourselves from this kind of demonic attack? You know, because people are susceptible, uh, especially in a, in, a, in a world rife with mortal sin, with <laughs> the occult being offered. You go to a massage uh, for a massage parlor, the, the, the massage therapist might very well say, hey, I can do this little thing for you, increase your energy. <laughs> I'm sure it happens all the time. Well, first of all, get rid of the sin out of your life. Get the hell rid of it, period. Live in accordance with the dignity of your baptism. That's one. Uh, secondly, 
live your faith life, strengthen your faith through the frequent reception of the sacraments, uh, through the reading of the word of God and developing a prayer life, right? Become the person that Christ designed you to be. You know, and thirdly, study your faith and study, catechize yourself on, uh, on the enemy and the kinds of things that he likes. And then you're prepared. And, um, you know, one of the things to, to put in a plug for this podcast again, this is exactly one of the areas. I mean, I tackle all of the areas. I, I elaborate um, the, the entire thing is the entire podcast, the entire series is an effort to inform people on how to break and end their relationships with Satan and, and to inform them of, of how they might be in the, even inadvertently establishing them and to, to forge more strongly their relationship with God. Father, last question for you. Daily Mass. It's been a bulwark for a lot of people. Your opinion on it and the demon's opinion on it. The seven sacraments are the seven ways Jesus Christ left to heal the world, period. And so to refuse the sacraments is to refuse God. So they are the ordinary way by which one becomes holy, the ordinary way. God can use extraordinary ways, and he does use them, but this is the ordinary way. Uh, so, so Sunday Mass is a non-negotiable. Right? It's a non-negotiable. Uh, the, the confession when one is in the state of mortal sin is a non-negotiable. Uh, baptizing a baby when the baby is still a newborn is, an, is a non-negotiable. It's, it's stupid and crazy that, that people are waiting months and sometimes years to baptize a child because, well, we have to wait until Aunt Selma comes from Puerto Rico or from Belgium in order to be present for the baby to receive the sacrament. This is stupid. You've now turned it into a human endeavor. You, you've turned it into something else. It's not about Christ anymore. It's not about the, the God's life-giving gift being given to this child. You've, you've changed it into something else. So daily mass is, uh, is not required by the church, but boy, my gosh, it is a way to, that daily encounter with Christ in the Eucharist is exorcistic. And it forges us in the way of God. It raises our place for eternity. Uh, so, so, so the church has taught from time immemorial, and it sanctifies us. Uh, and so, uh, I, I encourage all of your your viewers, your listeners, to 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 attend daily mass and and to receive the sacrament of confession frequently. You know, you do not need big sins to go to confession. Every encounter with the Lord in confession gives you sanctifying grace, which is the very life of God. Those two practices, along with a prayer life, my gosh, you're in great shape. Father Carlos Martins, thank you so much. What a wild ride. If you would close off for us by uh, granting us your blessing, perhaps with one of the relics, if you have one. I will certainly do that. But one thing I'm going to say is on the website of exorcistfiles.tv, at the very bottom, there is a, an email sign-up that your viewers, in order to sign up for the podcast, they can choose to add their emails in there. When the podcasts are released, they will be informed by email that that is the case. They will also receive instructions on how to download them if, if they need those instructions. That will be given by email. Uh, so uh, may Almighty God bless you, John Henry, your family members, your listeners and viewers, and all of those who who are beloved by God, 
who need the Christian message that is everybody. May God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you, Father. Thank you. For all of you, exorcistfiles.tv, go check it out and sign up. And God bless you all. We'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.